0: Hello, welcome back to Why Did Peter Sink? This episode is titled Cannibalism, and we're doing a little primer on the Catholic concept of time and space. Not very deep, but a little bit. So what prompted this episode? Well, at the company where I work, an employee posted this on a public Slack channel for all to read. He wrote, Catholics believe that they are actually eating the flesh and drinking the blood of Jesus during communion. The priest says the magic words and the cracker and wine are magically transformed into the actual flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. Okay, maybe I'm stretching, but there is no denying that it is ritual cannibalism. And I have a little screenshot of it um, with the name, of course, blotted out and the time and all that. So uh, now, if this kind of language was used against any other religion or identity, the person would have been fired where I work. It's a very woke company. Um, They... Um, have very strict things about what is allowed and what is not to be spoken as, you know, kind of generally culture-wide here. But if I had written a half-truth about Islam or sexual identity, I would be looking for work. Let's just be honest. Um, This type of language is as common today, though, as it was in the day Jesus said the words that we find in John chapter 6. In fact, the bread of life discourse and the Last Supper alert us to this mentality and misunderstanding even during Jesus's ministry. Uh, Arthur Schlesinger Schlesinger Sr. once said that anti-Catholic hatred is the deepest held bias in the history of the American people. But it actually goes way further back than that, literally all the way to Judas, as his faith stumbled after Jesus mentioned the requirements of eating and drinking of his body and blood. Now, normally a knife separates bread, but with Christ, the bread is the knife. That separates people. The Eucharist is central to faith and it separates people whether they be non-believers or even Christians because even within the Catholic Church it divides people as many people fall into the mistaken camp of symbolism and everyone uh, who believes in the Eucharist likes to quote Flannery O'Connor the great writer who famously said if it's just a symbol then to hell with it. So amen Flannery. And Flannery's got to be one of the greatest names I've ever heard, um, and probably the only person I've ever heard is her who had the name Flannery. But here's the thing I want to talk about. My coworker is halfway to the truth with his accusation. He's just missing some very, very important distinctions. He's close to being correct with this insult, but misses the most important part about the Eucharist. Yes, the Eucharist is literally the body and blood of Jesus Christ, but it is the risen and glorified body of Christ not, notice that the saying, he is risen, uses the present tense. Whenever people say that, I used to be confused. He is risen? What? He is risen? Well, from the first time Jesus mentioned that we must eat his body and drink his blood, it has divided people. The attack on the Eucharist has been going on since Jesus first spoke the words in the Bread of Life discourse. And Judas turned away. That's even in the chapter itself. It says the one um, who would betray him walked could not take this. He uh, this, was talking about the bread uh, of life, the body and blood. The attack on the Eucharist goes hand in hand also with persecution. If you listen to the last episode where we talked about the martyrs, and it seems to resurface often, um, almost not every time, but almost every time Christians are mocked or violated in the lives of the saints. So here's a quote from, What I was reading in the last episode, they accused us of feeding on human flesh like theestes and of committing incest like Oedipus, as well as other abominations, which it is unlawful for us even to think of, and which we can scarcely believe ever to have been perpetrated by men. Now, these same accusations are happening today. You can hardly go online without hearing that Christians are a bunch of inbred ignorant fools. And as for the attack on the Eucharist, this has been happening since the first days of the church. Uh, this happened in the Reformation with Luther and Calvin, and it happens now. So, as I said, my coworker was close to being correct. There's just one problem with his insult it's not cannibalism because Jesus isn't dead. So, what my coworker forgot, perhaps willfully, is that Jesus rose from the dead. And this is just such a fundamental error, but somehow people always miss it. Jesus has never been eaten while dead. He was not eaten on the cross after he said, it is finished, and nor was he eaten while he was in the tomb. He was eaten at the last supper while he was alive, and he is eaten now after the resurrection. So never, not once, was Jesus eaten while he was dead. People get all these images of the walking dead and zombies in their head, and then they miss the whole point because no one reads the Bible especially Catholics, but we should take note here. No one went into the tomb to eat him or try to drink his blood before it congealed. He experienced a very real death on the cross and no one, not Nicodemus or Joseph of Arimathea, are recorded as eating him on the way to the tomb. No, it happened days before at the Last Supper and it happens in the Eucharist in the Mass. So for those who have forgotten, Jesus was only dead for a short time. He's alive now, even more than he was at the Last Supper. Here's a take on it that may help folks like my co-worker. The early church was accused of cannibalism. It's not cannibalism. He's not dead. He's alive in glory with power for us. In order to practice cannibalism, the cannibal must kill his victim, and then the cannibal's cannibal's body converts the dead flesh into his own living flesh. And that's not what happens when we consume the Eucharist. When we receive Holy Communion, Christ remains alive. We don't change him into us. On the contrary, he transforms us into likenesses of himself. We become like him whom we consume. And in so doing, we become the selves God intended us to be. So I think this is mostly a problem of how we view space and time. Because we struggle We think about it um, in our limited finite brains but god lives outside of space and time and jesus is god the father is god the holy spirit is god it's three persons in one the risen christ lives outside of time and space seated in heaven here's a quote from jimmy aiken god's life has no end it's interminable and that he possesses all of that life all at once in a simultaneously whole manner. He does not experience it moment by moment the way we do. God's life, thus, is not spread out over time the way ours is, meaning that he is outside of time. There's a three part series uh, about the theological view of time and space by Jimmy Aiken, um, or there's another one I link to here in Trent Horn podcast talking about it. I'm trying to distill it down a bit here because to understand the Eucharist, the key point is knowing that God, the creator lives outside of time and space. And it's critical here, right here, to point out something that is so obvious that almost no one ever points it out. At the last supper, Jesus was not dead. I think everybody knows that, but it's worth saying it because we just don't think about it. He was alive when he said, this is my body. Now, also, in, before that, in the Bread of Life discourse, before the Last Supper, Jesus spoke on this in detail. He even repeated it to drive the point home, telling his followers that we must eat his body and drink his blood to have eternal life. There's nothing metaphorical about it. For all the times he does use a metaphor, this is not the one. This isn't like him saying, I am the vine or I am the living water. We get exposition on the metaphors from Jesus himself but in John 6 and at the last supper he hammers this point home about eating his body and drinking his blood. So if you believe that Christ is the son of God and you reject the bread of life discourse as metaphor and call the words of the last supper not, nothing but a symbol, then you are thinking too small about God. A man living in time and space like me or you or woman man whatever, um we have our limits. But a God That lives out time outside of time and space. Who created the universe can enter that space and time. Does does not have limits. It is limitless. If we think of Jesus as dead in the Eucharist, then why would we waste our time on it? No, but if he's alive, that's something very different. To me, the reason the Jesus prayer says, "Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the Living God, have mercy on me, a sinner," is because he is a living. God he is a living god not a dead one Tom Thomas Jefferson or Richard Dawkins they can have their dead clockmaker god i'm not interested in that god because as i've mentioned elsewhere that god does not matter to us living here in matter we are living in matter the only god that can change your life is the one who knows the number of hairs on your head i feel that one of the biggest impediments to belief today is is this bad concept of god because once you turn and see him as a living God, then every event in life begins to make sense, whether it's good or bad. It all draws you to him. Also, it's the point of the resurrection, in case we forgot, that Jesus did not stay dead. This is really important too, and it's one of these obvious things, like me saying, did you notice at the Last Supper, Jesus was not dead? And then I say, did you notice in the resurrection, he's not dead? He defeats death by rising you know rigor mortis and decay sets in for our bodies when we die and he died a real death but then he took up his life again just like he said he would so he's not dead the resurrection really is forgotten sometimes i think because what it means is that death does not contain our souls nor in the end will it even claim our bodies If you the resurrection of the dead, one of the most difficult things of all to understand in the Christian faith. We tend to just think of the resurrection as some kind of fairy tale. But the believers of the last 2,000 years did not build beautiful and immense cathedrals for, say, Little Red Riding Hood, who also died and was eaten and was cut free from the wolf's belly. No, they built these cathedrals, churches, songs, everything we have in our culture, they built them for a living God who loves each of us and can give us spiritual rebirth here and now and eternal life after our body dies. I think the flatness of the deistic worldview crept into our enlightenment brains because if God is not alive, then why would we care about him? That's literally how we've sliced the spiritual life off of ourselves by thinking, well, there is no such thing as spiritual life. But If you have a living God, there is very much a spiritual life. And once you start thinking in those terms, the world, the universe, your life, every interaction you have, every person's face starts to look different. God is the creator of the universe, the author of all things, who knows even the littlest thing about you down to your little league batting average and where your first kiss took place. He knows your weaknesses and burdens. He's alive. And that is the creator and living God that I understand and love. And he has shown his infinite mercy for us in coming into this story, this world, and this game. So, oh, we say, then why did he create this game with all the suffering? Well, I don't know. I don't know. But knowing that he is alive and with us changes the game. It changes the entire game. In our age of gaming and puzzles, I don't know how this hasn't caught on yet because we love games. If he has indeed written each of us into the story, he has a purpose for each of us. And to win this game, we must cooperate with his grace. And to me, rejecting his words on the Eucharist means turning away from him, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. Rejecting the Eucharist is treating God as if he was the absent clockmaker God, and I reject that entirely. He is the living God and he is alive in the Eucharist. The creep of doubt and half-hearted faith starts with the rejection of the Eucharist. Wasn't it exactly after Jesus' bread of life discourse in chapter 6 that the many disciples left him? He lost half of his crowd. He was trending huge after feeding the 5,000 loaves and fishes. Everyone loved him because he was giving them what they wanted. And then he goes and says, you have to eat my body and drink my blood. And then people are like, whoa, too much, too much. But you see the parallel. The many people left him because of this hard to accept saying. Crowds abandoned him because they couldn't deal with his crystal clear teaching about the Eucharist. Jesus announces Judas's path to betrayal here. And Judas has his doubts about the bread of life at this very point. Here's John chapter 6. After this, many of his disciples drew back and no longer went about with him. Jesus said to the twelve, Will you also go away? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was to betray him. It's not coincidental that after this talking about the bread of life, the first time we hear about Judas' betrayal comes up. So there's no surprise to be had when someone attacks the Eucharist that they were looking for something more than Jesus. He wasn't enough for them. Judas wanted a king, a social climber, a celebrity, a warrior. And he got all of those. He just doesn't know it. He just didn't know it. He didn't realize it. Judas's faith is gone because Jesus isn't popular or powerful. And thus Judas lacks the gift of faith. Judas and those who leave demand a greater sign from Jesus, which is a game Jesus does not play. As he says that if we won't believe Moses and the prophets or the miracles he has already performed, well, what will they believe? Before this, he literally just fed 5,000 people. Before this, he literally walks on water. So even if you don't like the loaves and fishes argument because you think, well, maybe they just all shared their food, what are you going to do with the walking on water? What are you going to do with that? That's impossible. So if someone says the Eucharist is a cracker blessed by magic like my coworker, then that is his or her own testimony before God. Now we must work out our own salvation with fear and trembling before God. That's our own, not others. Thus, there's no reason for me to be upset with those who say cruel things about the Eucharist because if Jesus is our model for living, we should notice he did not get angry at those who departed from him. The lost sheep always are most in need of forgiveness. And sometimes they hear it at different times in their life. For goodness sakes, even on the cross, Jesus prays for those who know not what they do. He only seems to get sad when they leave or or when they beat him or mock him or crucify him. He seems to be sad about it. Profaning the Eucharist is the most shameful act we as human beings can do and yet people do it brazenly thinking they have overcome god but they're spiritually cutting off their nose to spite their face the amazing and beautiful thing is that even after we do all of that to jesus he still wants us to come back he still loves us i have done all those things to jesus denying the eucharist denying his divinity mocking his name in my own falling away i said things much like my co-worker and i've crowned jesus with thorns of mockery calling his life a hoax, a myth, a fantasy, a crutch. The only hoax, myth, and fantasy in the end became my truth about the world, about heaven and hell. And I was the fraud, not Christ. So going back to John 6, one more thing. Then he asks his next question to the apostles saying, do you also want to leave? And that is when Peter shows his faith where grace floods over him and he submits his intellect and will to Jesus. I've quoted this before. We'll say it again. Peter says, Master, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and are convinced that you are the Holy One of God. Now, in my life, I have read those lines from Peter before, and I've heard them before. But there came a night in my life when they were no longer words, but a fact as sure as the sun coming up. I cannot read those lines without feeling like I am there. In this response from Peter, these are convicting lines that cut to the heart. He knows, and he has looked everywhere else, and he knows that Jesus is God. How? I don't know, but God knows, and now so do I. So when you put that question to yourself, you'll have to answer it. Do you also want to leave? Jesus asked that question. That's for each and every one of us. Do you also want to leave? What will you say to it? Will you deny that he is the bread of life? Will you follow him? Or is something else your master? All right, that's it for this episode of Why Did Peter Sink? We'll be back soon with another episode. Thanks for listening as always.